Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, episode 8. Last time, we examined the high-level meeting between Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin which took place after Mao arrived in Moscow on the 16th of December 1949. The learning curve, in Mao's case, was steep, as we saw how Stalin manipulated every agreement he could find in order to fool Mao into adhering to the old Treaty of 1945, which had granted large tracts of land and rights to the Soviet Union, and which Mao had been determined to overturn. 
Overturning the 1945 treaty was one thing, but when Mao let it be known how dependent he was upon the Soviets for aid in invading Taiwan and taking out the Republican regime once and for all, Stalin knew he had his communist ally right where he wanted him. Mao's needs were sticks with which Stalin could beat China into submission to create in Beijing a dependency of the Soviet Union and to ensure that Joseph Stalin became even more powerful than ever before. This was where we left Mao last time. He was certainly demoralised and a bit taken aback at Stalin's evident determination to get what he wanted. Perhaps he expected the Soviet chairman to be more accommodating, but either way he was faced with the prospect of icy relations with Stalin unless he gave him what he wanted. Knowing full well how important the Soviet relationship was to the People's Republic of China, Mao determined to bring his best people to Moscow to help him decide on the issues at stake. Among these was Chao Enlai, the Chinese foreign secretary, and the man whom Stalin was keen to keep away from Moscow, lest his superior knowledge of the agreements made in 1945 jeopardise the Soviet advantage. Either way, on the 18th of December, after feeling bad about himself for approximately 24 hours, Mao set to work bringing some friends to Russia. It is from here then that we resume our story. I will now take you to the 18th of December, 1949. The song of the week this week is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. Sort of. When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which, as we all know by now, is a marketplace of the mind. It is a stamp of quality. Whenever you see the Agora Podcast symbol, you'll know that the podcast you're about to listen to is going to be pretty darn good. When Diplomacy Fails is very, very proud to be associated with the Agora Podcast Network, and we really do hope you'll check out the other members in our network. In case you weren't aware, there's some excellent podcasts out there, so if you happen to just be listening to When Diplomacy Fails, which I gather is probably unlikely, you should check out other podcasts as well. Some of these people are even my friends, so I would recommend checking us out. And of course, as always, there is different ways to get in touch with the people that do Agora Podcast Network, such as Facebook. We have a Facebook group now, because why not? Everyone else seems to. Check out the Agora Podcast Network Facebook group by simply searching for it in Facebook or on the Google or whatever you want to do, and come and join us. We're always eager to talk to our listeners and to keep the discussions going. There's always something to talk about. There's always something to complain about. There's always something to laugh at. So make sure to join us the Agora Podcast Network Facebook group. For everything else, guys, make sure to check out the actual Agora Podcast which is a kind of amalgamation of several different projects that we at Agora take part in. So do check that out. You can find that by searching Agora Podcast in iTunes or any other podcatchers that you are aware of. Okay, so with that out of the way, the song of the week this week is Tu Ra Lu Ra Lu Ra by Chauncey Alcott. Yes, that is a real song. The song is often referred to as an Irish lullaby. I don't know about that, since I've never heard of it before, and as we all know, I'm a beacon of all things Irish culture. Olcott recorded the song in 1913, but it was subsequently covered by several artists, including Bing Crosby in the 1940s. Enjoy this blast from the past then, guys, and we'll be back with episode 8 of The Korean War. (laughs) 
mother sang a song to me in tones of sweet and at all. Just a simple little ditty in our good old Irish way. And I dear my world if she could sing that song. It had been a deflating, demoralising experience, but Mao Zedong was at least hopeful that more could be gained from Stalin in the future than had so far been granted. In a revealing cable home on the 18th of December 1949, Mao mixed fact with fiction in a bid to bolster the morale of his peers in China and to perhaps encourage a more upbeat dialogue in the process. It would have been easy to feel gloomy about the future. Stalin held all the cards, thoroughly enjoyed lording his position over Mao and was at best a cynical businessman when it came to arranging anything. However, Mao was not without leverage himself and he appreciated that the one card he had which Stalin feared amusing above all was that which would bring the People's Republic of China into amicable relations with the West. If the Chinese and Americans could develop their relationship to such an extent that Mao didn't need Stalin anymore, then Stalin's interests would be seriously compromised in Asia. Of course, the question of whether it was possible to reconcile Washington's old policy with that of the new regime in China was less important to Mao than making some suggestive use of the idea of such an arrangement. Before such manipulation took place, though, Mao had to inform his colleagues of what had gone down during his meeting with Stalin on the 16th of December, 1949, and he did this in a long cable, in which he said, among other points, that If we abolish the old treaty and sign a new treaty, the status of the Kuril Islands will be changed, and the United States will have an excuse to take away the Kuril Islands. Therefore, on the question of the Soviet Union's 30-year lease of Port Arthur, we should not change it in format. However, in reality, the Soviet Union will withdraw its troops from Port Arthur and let Chinese troops occupy it. Stalin agreed to sign a statement which will solve the Port Arthur problem in accordance with the above-mentioned ideas. Stalin said it is unnecessary for the foreign minister to fly here just for signing a statement. In this cable, then, we see reference to that gentleman's agreement which Stalin had attempted to impress upon Mao in the last episode. If you remember, Stalin had reasoned that the 1945 treaty with the old Chinese regime was too enshrined in the Yalt Agreement and thus could not be changed or the Anglo-Americans would view it as open season and come to claim further territories in Asia. Stalin was bluffing and lying at the same time, of course. He knew full well that Yalta and the 1945 treaty that he had made with the Republic of China were two separate entities and he was heavily banking on Mao's lack of knowledge 
on the two agreements to get by. This explains why he didn't want any purported expert in Chinese foreign policy such as Chow and Lai to stop by. It would be much harder to pull the wool over Mao's eyes if Mao was backed up by someone who was better informed. Thus, Mao alluded to the gentleman's agreement with Stalin, which had not been sorted out in any kind of contract by this point, as an agreement which had far more weight than it actually did. Stalin was determined to keep it as a kind of vague handshake agreement for as long as possible, since this would enable him to claim whatever concessions he desired in order to bring it forward and squeeze Mao for a higher price later on. Having clearly been distracted by irrelevant details, Mao explained that he thought it was necessary for us to maintain the legitimacy of the Yalta Agreement, but reasoned at the same time that as the old treaty was signed by the Kuomintang, it has lost its standing. Mao then did something kind of strange. As I said earlier, he mixed the actual events of the meeting with some fiction, and this fiction was found in the form of the following statement that he made to his colleagues, where he said that The old treaty needs to be revised, and that the revision is necessarily substantial, but it will not come until two years from now. At no point during Mao's meeting with Stalin was any two-year waiting period mentioned, nor does any mention of a substantial revision of the treaty appear in the transcript of Mao's conversation with Stalin on the 16th of December. It is not entirely clear why Mao added these points in. They do at least make the picture of his meeting with Stalin seem like a less depressing affair, so perhaps it is true that Mao injected some fiction into his cable home in a bid to encourage his colleagues and to assure them that Stalin did in fact negotiate with the fairest of intentions. Mao knew the opposite to be true by this point, and if he didn't then, what followed this cable on the 18th of December was destined to seriously damage any kind of odd sense of gratitude he once held for the Soviet leader. This disenchantment with Stalin on Mao's part came about because Stalin proceeded to ignore Mao for five days once their 16th of December meeting had taken place. In the midst of his impatience at the unreturned calls and those Facebook messages where Stalin had clearly seen the message but not replied, what a meanie, Mao had made use of the best leverage he had, the threat of China establishing friendly relations with the United States. On the 19th of December in another cable home, Mao requested a reply to his cable of the previous day, but he also authorised his colleagues to forge ahead with the establishment of relations with a certain capitalist country, which in actual fact referred to the establishment of Chinese relations with Burma, but which could easily be inferred to mean the United States. Mao followed this up with a note that, Indeed, if a certain capitalist country openly announces the desire to establish diplomatic relations with us, our side should request that it dispatch its representatives to China for discussions. We should address the question of why Mao's cables home to his own peers in Beijing were such an effective diplomatic weapon in the Chinese leader's mind. The simple explanation for this is that he knew full well that the Soviets, and Stalin especially, were intercepting and reading all of the cables that Mao sent. In such a way, Mao could effectively communicate his threats to Stalin, and Stalin would be forced to take on board the information and torture himself as he tried to imagine what it really meant. If Stalin wanted the torture to stop, he could promptly call Mao up and end the ridiculous policy of the cold shoulder which he insisted on persisting with. For Stalin, though, the suggestion that Mao may be pursuing American friendships unfurled more red flags in Moscow than Mao could have imagined. 
Stalin knew that by this stage, both Britain and India were willing to recognise the People's Republic of China, and they would in fact do this in the first week of January 1950. Thanks to this fact, Stalin could imagine that the United States would not be far behind in following its allies' lead, especially since Washington had long searched for some kind of excuse to release the Chiang Kai-shek-shaped albatross from around its neck. In actual fact, as we'll see when we look at the American side of things from 1949, the question of abandoning the Republican regime in return for better relations with Mao was an immensely difficult issue for Washington to respond to. In spite of the difficulties though, Stalin's worst fears will become reality when on the 5th of January 1950, the US National Security Council paper, number 48, announced the beginning of a hands-off policy with respect to the Republican Chinese. What other reason would the United States have for cutting off its old ties with Chiang Kai-shek if not to ingratiate itself with Mao Zedong's regime? Without Chiang's Republicans holding back Sino-American relations, Mao would be able to cooperate with Washington like never before, thus increasing Beijing's security, lessening Mao's concerns and enabling him to better establish his regime on a more secure footing. This would empower Mao Zedong and ensure that neither a divided China nor a distracted China was the result, removing in the process one of the old aims of the Soviet Union's, or rather Stalin's, Chinese policy, which had developed since 1945. Although it had begun as a policy which desired two Chinese governments, the civil war had prevented such a goal, and Stalin was thus content to settle with an arrangement that saw an unfinished civil war in Taiwan always play on Mao's sensibilities while the threat of the Americans intervening could also be played up to his advantage. Sowing discord between China and the West, keeping Mao Zedong paranoid of any Republican resurgence, and thus ensuring that Mao remained dependent on the Soviet Union and distracted by his own affairs, these were the goals that motivated Stalin in his pursuit of greater powers and influence in Asia. If Mao managed to establish good ties with Washington, these plans and Stalin's ambitions for Asian expansion of the Soviet writ would plainly fall apart. It was precisely because Mao did not know the full extent of Stalin's grand ambitions for Asia that he didn't realise at the same time how good Sino-American relations could possibly jeopardise them. Wishing to bring some leverage of his own to bear on the non-committal Stalin, what Mao actually did was, in Stalin's mind at least, push the Soviet leader towards a drastic solution. It was time, Stalin believed, to talk to Kim Il-sung. The emergence, at last, of the Korean element into our story should help to explain why we've taken such a long detour through Sino-Soviet relations. While the exercise has been fascinating and I've really enjoyed it, it also helps us greatly to appreciate why, after so many years and months of stonewalling North Korean dictators' calls for Soviet aid in the invasion of the South, Stalin finally seemed to come around. The 19th of December 1949 is a cut-off date and a critical pivot upon which Soviet foreign policy turned. From that point, Stalin began to wholeheartedly support North Korean ambitions like never before. As we'll learn though, Stalin's motives and the way in which he provided such support provide some grounds for confusion. Considering Stalin's apparent and often lauded determination to support Kim Il-sung to the end, it is remarkable that he contributed very little to the North Korean war effort. What was more, Stalin sought to actively sabotage and misrepresent the conflict to Kim Il-sung when he got the chance. This, as Richard C. Thornton discerns, 
is because Stalin did not want a straight-up North Korean military victory. What really motivated Stalin above all was the prospect of a long war in Korea, draining Western resources and attentions, and, as an added bonus, distracting Mao Zedong and preventing him from establishing a secure regime. North Korea bordered portions of Manchuria, which brought that chestnut up again, and so long as American forces intervened in Korea, Stalin could paint this to Mao as further evidence of the Anglo-American effort to undermine the People's Republic of China and to prop up the Republican regime in Taiwan. Thornton was not the only historian to emphasise the point that Stalin intended to use North Korea and that conflict as a bargaining chip to improve his position in Asia and Europe at Mao's expense. The acclaimed historian on Soviet foreign policy, Adam B. Ulam, had the same view when he wrote his massive book, Expansion and Coexistence, the History of Soviet Foreign Policy. In the same way, historian Mineo Nakajima, writing on Sino-Soviet tensions in 1979, was able to summarise Ulam's views and note that they were both logical and conceivable. Nakajima summarised Stalin's ambitions in the Korean War by saying that Stalin apparently thought that the United States, under its current Asian policy, had abandoned continental Asia, that the poorly equipped and ill-trained forces of the Republic of Korea would be wiped out in a single operation, that an adventurous attempt under these circumstances would mean little risk to the Soviet Union, that a war in Korea would cause the Chinese to agree to the Soviets' postponement of the evacuation of Port Arthur, and that an expanded American presence in Japan would lead inevitably to virtual military control of Manchuria. Here at When Diplomacy Fails, it may seem as though we always take a revisionist or exceptionally out there view on how wars progressed. We look at the facts though, as best as they are available to us, and I present both my judgments and the conclusions of others while we build as clear a picture as possible on how a war happened. The Korean War though, to me, epitomises the importance of revisionism in the historical discourse for many reasons. I can't emphasise enough how much intense negotiations were actually going on from late 1949 to the point that the Korean War erupted in late June 1950. It was during this roughly six month stretch of time that theories abound over exactly how much the three concerned powers, the USSR, the United States and China, impacted the decision of Kim Il-sung to invade South Korea. I will say that I can dispel here and now the conspiracy theory which sometimes does the rounds that the South actually started the war, and if you listen to the introduction episode of this series you'll know that I don't believe this was the case. I will go into more detail on that issue in a future episode, but for now we can put that to the side. Instead, what makes covering a war like this both fascinating and immensely challenging is the sheer weight of articles and sources declaring to have the definite say on how and why the Korean War broke out. Some accounts blame the Americans, some the Chinese and some the Soviets. Some, like Thornton's book, apportion blame, though Thornton himself never uses that word, pretty much equally. As always, what we have to do is place the Korean War in the circumstances of the time. To get this clarified right away, Stalin had a profoundly important role in the conflict, perhaps the most important role because without Stalin the Korean War never would have happened. The Truman administration, it seems, wished to use the Korean War for their own ends and aimed at using the conflict as an excuse to engage in a massive rearmament program which would enable them to properly stand up to the influence of communism in the future. 
This desire to rearm and combat communism's spread was an American policy development which only came about in February 1950 when a Sino-Soviet alliance was definitively signed. Before February 1950, Truman had been content to pursue the Great Wedge policy. That is, he hoped that by diplomatically dividing the Soviet Union and People's Republic of China, America could stand on the fence and prevent any massive pooling of communist resources in the world. With the evident failure of this policy in the signing of the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Alliance and Friendship and Mutual Assistance in February 1950, Washington changed tack and switched to containment through arms. Korea before long seemed the perfect theatre through which such a policy could be developed. A war which lasted for several years and which required a grinding effort on America's part would be the perfect impetus behind acquiring the approval for a defence budget increase. This defence budget increase was urgently required now that America's Great Wedge strategy had failed and containment of the Sino-Soviet influence became the norm. As if adding further weight to the theory, one needs merely to look at American defence spending both before and after the Korean War, but also at the defence spending of its Western European allies, who proceeded to reinforce NATO with a new vigour. We learned in the Cold War crash course that in the space of 18 months, America's defence budget increased from 15 billion in spring 1950 to nearly 80 billion in autumn 1951. The efforts of the Truman administration to acquire greater defence capabilities and the means to combat the Sino-Soviet bloc had thus been vindicated in the course of the Korean War. The reason why such confusion reigns over the true intentions of the three major powers is because of the conflicting opinions and aims of each of the major figures within, not to mention the domineering presence which North Korea itself normally holds in the narrative of the Korean War. I should add that several sources do follow the line which argue that America abandoned South Korea, that it was surprised at the Northern aggression, that it suspected Soviet involvement, that it was surprised at Chinese intervention, and that it then did its best to fight along its UN allies in this unexpected war. To this I have to add that only recently have several important revisionist accounts of the Korean War come to light, which take the focus off the North Korean government and place more emphasis on the idea of great power involvement for the varied ends of those involved. I wanted to add this little note on how the Korean War is viewed and what my views on it are at this point, because I understand that it can be a confusing and sometimes overwhelmingly dense conflict to follow. I also wanted to put my own views forward and explain their foundations because I accept that I won't be in the majority here, at least not yet. Just as I did with the July Crisis Anniversary Project and the 1916 series, I do believe that in time more historians will come to look at things from this angle, but for now I have to be transparent with you guys. I'm not going to pretend that my analysis or conclusions will be universally accepted by others or even you guys, and I don't expect you guys to just follow me blindly either. We will certainly come across other conclusions or points of view, and I will bring them to you, unwrap them, and explain why I disagree with them as best as I can. But I am following this explanation of events, which Thornton's book also follows, because in my view it is by far the most convincing. I am a man for context, as you know, and Thornton's book and the perspective it advocates seems to me to make the most sense, considering what we know of Stalin, Mao and Truman by this point. Everything was connected in the post-war world, and it is always important to remember that. Just as surely as the North Korean invasion was seen as a Soviet distraction by some in the West, so too did Mao believe that American intervention in the conflict 
was just a front for the West's determination to undermine the People's Republic of China and threaten Chinese stability. To give proper attention to the concerns and aims of all involved in the Korean War will take some time, but as always we will do our best and I will try to remain as clear and accessible in my explanations as possible. With that little disclaimer out of the way then, remember where our story is now. We're in the process of detailing the events leading up to the signing of the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Mutual Assistance etc. in February 1950. This is the same treaty which would force Washington to turn its own foreign policy on its head. Just as the Sino-Soviet Treaty in February 1950 moved American foreign policy into another phase, so too did Mao's apparent intentions to pursue links with America move Stalin to invest in North Korea in a bid to torpedo the Chinese leader's position and open up new opportunities for the Soviet Union elsewhere. Stalin was motivated by power and by the pressing need to reinforce his own influence. Such motives fueled his paranoia as much as they got him out of bed in the morning, and they helped to explain why, in the context of Mao's visit to Moscow from late December 1949 onwards, Stalin was increasingly turning North Korea into a potential solution to his problems. With all that I've just said in mind then, let's continue our analysis of these talks and bring the narrative of Sino-Soviet relations up to the end of 1949. In late December 1949, Stalin sent a Soviet delegation of military advisors to North Korea and he further authorised Kim to begin rallying the North's communist agents that lived in the South. That these moves took place in close proximity to one another after several months of stonewalling with regard to Korea can be taken as evidence that Stalin had determined to create in North Korea an ideal situation whereby war against the South could be launched. If the impetus had been given by the likely possibility of Chinese rapprochement with the West, then Stalin certainly never looked back once the lever had been pulled. Interestingly, Stalin gave no hint of what he was planning in North Korea to Mao, and he continued to ignore the Chinese leader up to the point that Mao attended Stalin's 70th birthday celebrations in person on the 21st of December. During these celebrations, if they could be called that, Mao even sat beside Stalin, which was a high honour and perhaps an unexpected one, considering the coldness of their relations up to that point. Although Mao was described as being gloomy and unresponsive during the festivities, Mao did give a brief speech in which he flattered Stalin as a teacher and friend of the Chinese people, who had developed the revolutionary theory of Marxism and Leninism and made extremely outstanding and extremely broad contributions to the cause of the world communist movement. However extremely Mao felt about Stalin, he was almost certainly feeling extremely slighted and not particularly impressed with the Soviet leader's hospitality. Only the day before the birthday scenes, Mao had impressed upon one of Stalin's aides the importance of Sino-Soviet negotiations and of his express wish to move ahead with proceedings. Stalin could either involve himself with the talks, renegotiate the 1945 treaty and proceed with arrangements for a loan and a trade deal, or there could be discussions without formalising anything. If the latter occurred, Mao said, there would be no need for Chao and Lai to come or for him to stay in Moscow much longer. In such a way, Mao hoped to send a message, an ultimatum of sorts, to Stalin. Stalin, as it transpired, was now far too preoccupied with his newfound North Korean plans to pay Mao much attention. 
Mao quickly learned that Stalin was in no rush to see him, and it's no wonder he seemed the picture of gloom when sitting beside him the next day. But in a sense, this event proved the last straw for Mao. Knowing that Stalin continued to read his cables, Mao sent a memo home on the 22nd of December detailing the plans for Chinese trade in the future and the powers which would soon open their markets to the People's Republic. We have arranged to talk with Stalin on December 23rd or 24th. After this talk, we will be able to define our own guiding principles. In such a way, in such a curious back-channel way, did Mao communicate to Stalin that much would depend upon their subsequent meetings. But as Stalin well knew, no immediate plans existed for the two leaders to meet. Mao had apparently been bolstering the picture of Sino-Soviet relations for audiences back home. Mao would continue to make references to several meetings which took place between the 23rd to the 30th of December, yet no such records exist in the Soviet equivalent records. Considering the fact that Mao lied before, it seems likely that Mao was attempting here to mask the fact that Stalin had been ignoring him for the past two weeks, not since their dissatisfying meeting on the 16th of December had anything substantial been discussed. Mao was suitably outraged at this deliberate snubbing, which he derided as a diplomatic tactic on Stalin's part that was surely aimed at softening him up for granting concessions to the Soviets further down the line. Mao also angrily rejected suggestions in late December that he should participate in a tour of the Soviet Union. He was not about to be paraded around the country like some satisfied puppet. In his mind, Mao was neither a puppet nor even close to being satisfied. Yet Stalin does seem to have been genuinely busy with the North Korean issue, and he spent time building his options in that sphere up once he decided to finally support Kim Il-sung in the war to come in Korea. Mao could not have known this, and he also couldn't have known that this new focus for Stalin led him to abruptly change his tune with China. On the 1st of January 1950, Stalin sent Molotov and Anastash Mikoyan to meet with Mao. The latter Soviet official had been to China on the business of Sino-Soviet relations in the past. You might remember him, we met him a few episodes ago, and he'll be important both for this series and for our series 1956 to come. With his new Korean distraction device in play by this point, Stalin no longer felt that he needed to play hardball about the 1945 treaty, and he instructed Molotov and Mikoyan to give Mao the assurance that he wanted with regards to its renegotiation. Suddenly, Mao was very pleasantly surprised to learn, these officials also wanted to talk to his foreign minister. At last, Mao could imagine he would no longer have to be alone in this cagey place. On the 2nd of January 1950, Mao sent a cable home, explaining that Stalin has agreed to Comrade Chow and Lai's arrival here and to the signing of a new Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Alliance, as well as agreements on credit, trade, civil aviation and others. The foundations for the actual treaty in February 1950, which was to have such massive implications for American foreign policy, were thus already being set. In the evening of the 2nd of January, after sending off his cable back home, Stalin called Mao and talked with him at length over the phone. Explaining the new spirit of the treaty between the two powers, Stalin emphasised that discussions would continue over the fate of Port Arthur and Manchuria, and that an alliance against Japan and its allies, meaning, of course, the Americans, would also be signed. These changes greeted Mao well, but Stalin classically neglected to tell Mao of a certain other important development in this new treaty that he was developing, that it would be based upon Stalin's considerations for the looming conflict in Korea. 
Mao's busy evening continued because after concluding his call with Stalin late into the night, at 4am, he sent another cable home detailing the following developments, saying that the new treaty will press the capitalist countries to play by rules that will be set by us. It will be favourable for the unconditional recognition of China by various countries. It will lead to the cancellation of the old treaties and the conclusion of new ones, and it will also deter the capitalist countries from reckless undertakings. At this apparent breakthrough in his Soviet negotiations, Mao was ecstatic. It seemed as though all the frustration and insult had been worth it. Here at last was a verbal commitment from Stalin to cooperate on equal parity with Beijing. With Chao Enlai set to arrive in Moscow on the 20th of January, Mao could be confident that the next phase of the negotiations were about to begin. He didn't know what he had particularly done or whether his limited pressure campaign through the decoded cables back home had helped to change Stalin's mind, but Mao would not wait to see Stalin change his mind again. Basking in his own accomplishment and finally able to view the future of Sino-Soviet relations with some positivity, Mao wasn't about to pause to question Stalin's true motives, nor did he imagine that the once unstable investment in North Korea had since become Stalin's trump card. Since he clearly couldn't persuade China to steer clear of the West, Stalin believed that the next best thing was to engineer such a gaping wound between Mao and President Truman that no such rapprochement could ever take place. As he promised friendship and alliance in person, in private, Stalin was working to manoeuvre Mao into conflict with the West over Korea. We've covered a great deal of content in this episode. We've encountered a few watershed moments and brought to you guys some perhaps controversial ideas. So I'm going to leave it there for today. Next time we're going to change our focus and begin our coverage of the Sino-American angle. What were the Americans doing while Stalin attempted to make progress with Mao? What were the major concerns and aims of Washington during the period? How possible was a break between Stalin and Mao? in the view of the Truman administration, before the shattering news of the February 1950 Treaty of Alliance. All of these questions will be gradually addressed in the next few episodes, as we tackle the American angle and are introduced to Truman's foreign policy strategy, known as the Great Wedge, before we tie the Sino-American and Sino-Soviet threads of diplomacy together and conclude with some other shattering conclusions. For now though guys, I'm going to take my leave. My name is Zach and you've been listening to episode 8 of The Korean War. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.